Hey team. All right. So today we are going to talk about a far less interesting and less glamorous topic. So I'm sorry in advance. You can feel free to use this clip as a means to help you sleep after your long week of overnight shifts. And maybe by the end of week, you'll have managed to make it through the entire thing. All right. So on that glorious introduction, we're going to talk about fluid resuscitation. Boo. While this really isn't the most exciting topic on the planet, the fact is we give fluids to almost every patient in the emergency department. Usually it's warranted, but sometimes it's absolutely vital. And I will admit, there are times we don't need to be giving fluid. But I think by sheer placebo effect, it seems to make most patients feel better. But I'm not really going to talk about those patients. Suffice it to say that in non-serious or critical patients, a liter of normal saline is an effective and inexpensive way to make them feel better. And there is little harm in giving a normal-sized adult less than two liters of normal saline. It doesn't really cause any of the possible complications that I'm going to touch on here down the road. What we really need to be talking about is fluid resuscitation of a seriously or critically ill patient, right? So those that actually require fluid in order to restore adequate tissue perfusion. All right. I just said a buzz phrase that should cue you in as to what I'm talking about. Restore adequate tissue perfusion. Once again, I'm talking about shock. So what types of shock am I really referring to? So mainly hypovolemic shock, although all forms of distributive shock have some degree of hypovolemia to them, right? Remember, distributive shock is caused by a loss of systemic vascular resistance. So the tank opens up and thus patients become hypovolemic. That's why the resuscitation of a patient in distributive shock begins with fluids. Do you remember how much fluids for like sepsis? 30 cc per kilo. So what about just plain old hypovolemic shock? Well, as I've said previously, there are two types of hypovolemic shock, right? There's hemorrhagic and non-hemorrhagic. Hemorrhagic shock, in theory, is probably the easiest form of shock to deal with. Step one, control the bleeding. Step two, give blood. Now, in practice, that obviously becomes a lot more difficult. But I'll talk more about hemorrhagic shock down the line when we start to talk about traumas or GI bleedings, as those are our most common causes of hemorrhagic shock here in good old Montana. Non-hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock comes from conditions where your total body water or intravascular volume drops. So what are some things that can cause this? So GI losses, rather, whether it's from profuse diarrhea or vomiting, renal losses from diuretic use. So there's some neurologic conditions like cerebral salt wasting syndrome that can cause this. Um, profound dehydration, whether it's exercise induced or from heat exhaustion or just from the lack of intake, like people that have been found down and have been down for several days, or perhaps it's those with conditions that cause third spacing. All right. So what's third spacing? So that's when fluid accumulates in a space that's not really intracellular or extracellular, right? It's fluid in a place where it isn't serving any physiologic purpose. So ascites from heart failure or liver failure is a good example of this, right? Pleural effusions, scrotal edema. So even conditions like acute pancreatitis can cause third spacing into the retroperitoneal cavity. Um, all of these cause a loss in total body water, and thus they can cause hypovolemia and eventually lead to decreased or inadequate tissue perfusion. So the mainstay of treatment for hypovolemia is to stop losses and replete fluid. If a patient has significant vomiting, Antiemetics are appropriate. If you stop medications that are contributing to the problem, like stopping their diuretics, right? Treatment for acute pancreatitis, whether it's an ERCP or a cholecystectomy, would be appropriate. Um, insulin therapy for DKA or HHS can all start to correct the underlying cause of hypovolemia in those conditions. Remember, 
all of these conditions come with their own metabolic and electrolyte disturbances. So these all need to be taken into account when we start fluid replacement. So to start, how do we assess fluid status, right? There's a couple ways to do this. First, and probably the easiest, is you give the patient a fluid challenge, right? This can be done with a quick 250, 500 cc fluid bolus given over five to 10 minutes, right? So in kids, this is about 10 cc's per kilo. And you see if the patient responds to this and has an improvement in their blood pressure or improvement in their signs of perfusion, right? So if we're hesitant to give fluid for whatever reason, and I'm thinking about patients with like severe heart failure or underlying pulmonary hypertension, where you really don't want to be pushing fluids unless you absolutely need to, you can do a pseudo fluid challenge. Um, so this is called the passive leg raise. This is when you very awkwardly lift the patient's legs and hips to about a 45 degree-ish angle. And it gives a pretty instantaneous, so in about a 90 seconds or so, it gives about a 350 to 500 cc fluid bolus. Uh, if their blood pressure increases, then they're highly likely to respond to fluids. And it's not going to cause, you know, pulmonary edema in a patient with heart failure. So the other way you can do this is you can look at respiratory variation on ultrasound, right? So what this means is we look at the IVC through the abdomen, so right where the IVC meets the right atrium, and you look to see how much variation occurs with breathing. So if their IVC is naturally small, so less than 1.5 centimeters, then they probably are volume down because that's a very small IVC. Or you look and see, and if, and if the diameter of their IVC changes by greater than 50%, then they're very likely to be fluid responsive. So sorry, changes greater than 50% with inspiration. If it collapses that much, then they're likely to be, to be very fluid responsive. So now that we know that we have a hypovolemic patient and we believe that they're gonna be fluid responsive, how do we decide what fluid to use? Well, the easy answer is if I plan on giving less than two liters of fluid, I'm okay with normal saline. It's less expensive, it's readily available, and in smaller volumes, it's unlikely to cause any serious metabolic derangements, but it is no longer the ideal fluid to be giving, um, even in small volume resuscitations, right? But when we're talking about a patient in true hypovolemic shock, we're probably gonna start talking about patients getting multiple liters of IV fluid, so more than two liters of fluid, in which case we really need to start considering what metabolic arrangements exist or what ones we're about to create by giving them fluids. So the normal serum plasma concentration typically contains about 140 milliequivalents of sodium and 103 milliequivalents of chloride, right? That's like my normal electrolyte concentration. A normal potassium level is about four, and then there's other electrolytes, so calcium, magnesium, et cetera, that are floating around. We also have a natural bicarb buffer, right, at about 24 milliequivalents. All of this makes up our plasma, and in a normal person, it causes a pH of about 7.4. Normal saline, however, is literally just 154 milliequivalents of sodium and 154 milliequivalents of chloride. It doesn't have a bicarb buffer, and so the pH of this solution is closer to 5. So you can see that when you start giving multiple liters of normal saline, you're actually going to drive the patient's chloride levels significantly up, and you're going to drive their pH levels down. In essence, we give them a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. And I'm sitting in my living room using finger quotations, which is kind of ridiculous. There are two other common types of crystalloid fluids, right? Lactated ringers and plasmolytes. Um, these are usually referred to as balanced crystalloids, again with the finger quotes, 
um, because they contain more natural concentrations of electrolytes. Lactated ringers have a sodium concentration of about 130, so a little bit less than physiologic sodium, and a chloride level of about 109, right? They're pretty close to normal physiologic concentrations. It also has potassium and calcium at near normal physiologic concentrations. There is a buffer, it's lactate, not lactic acid, but the basic precursor to that, right? So the pH is actually higher than normal saline, right? It's about 6.5-ish. Um, furthermore, lactated ringers contain calcium, as I said, which is actually a great thing in a patient with shock because calcium is a natural presser and it may actually help increase your systemic vascular resistance, the cardiac output, and thus increase the blood pressure. It was originally thought that because the fluid contained lactate, it would increase lactic acid concentrations when, when given to patients in shock, but that doesn't actually really pan out, right? It really doesn't meaningfully, meaningfully change their lactate level. In fact, lactate is used by the dreaded Krebs cycle, right? So in heart and brain cells, they're actually designed to use lactate to their advantage in ischemic conditions, ischemic conditions like shock. So when people are in shock, this is now actually thought to be beneficial in helping cells create energy during an acute uh, illness. We also thought it would increase potassium levels, right? But considering it contains four mil equivalents of potassium, which is the same as normal plasma, this theory never really made sense to me, right? So if you give a patient a uh, this fluid with a potassium, blah, blah, blah. if you give a patient that has a potassium level of five, this fluid that contains a potassium level of four, it seems to me that this should actually lower their overall average potassium level once this equilibrium is struck. I suppose I can see how it would transiently raise a potassium level, but we're giving fluids to a person because they're fluid down. So the fluid's gonna dissipate both intra and extracellularly and won't meaningfully raise the potassium concentration. So do keep in mind that you cannot run blood products, which typically have citrate for anticoagulation properties with lactated ringers because the calcium in this fluid binds the citrate in the blood products and it precipitates in veins and IV lines and can clot them off, right? You can give them to a patient at the same time, you just can't give them through the same line. So really the only relative contraindication to lactated ringers is people with liver failure because they can't metabolize lactate. This really doesn't harm the patient in any way, but it can sometimes make it more difficult to interpret their lactate levels and actually interpret what you're, how you're doing on a resuscitation. So plasmolite is the other balanced crystalloid. This contains about 140 milliequivalents of sodium and 98 milliequivalents of chloride. So it actually is pretty close to physiologic concentrations. It also has about five milliequivalents of potassium and it contains magnesium, but does not contain calcium. The buffer in this solution is acetate and gluconate. Suffice it to say, this product is not that much different than lactated ringers, but it's much more expensive. And there's probably specific reasons to give plasmolites, primarily like in the perioperative setting, but that's way above my head. And so I will tell you, I will never use plasmolite until I have data that says I should. The other option for fluid resuscitation is colloid products, right? So this is like albumin. Now, most colloid products at some point in time have been proven to actually be more harmful than crystalloids. So we don't really advocate giving these, particularly in ED resuscitations. The only population I can really see an argument for giving colloids is in a patient with really bad cirrhosis, right? These patients are typically total bottom sodium down 
or sorry, total bottom sodium up and fluid overloaded, but they're intravascularly dry and they're typically intravascularly hyponatremic. So the thought here is that if you give a hyperoncotic fluid, so albumin, it's going to draw fluid and sodium back into the vascular space from the available third space. Now this pans out better in theory than it does in practice, right? Because it doesn't actually pull ascites fluid back into the vascular space. It's important to realize that only about a quarter of the fluid that you give actually stays in the intravascular space and the rest redistributes as it normally would into the interstitial fluid. But I've done it before, right? I've, I've given this to a, if I've given a cirrhotic several liters of fluid, I think it's reasonable to go ahead and give them albumin more to prevent fluid from going into the third space than to actually pull it from the third space back intravascularly, right? It'll just keep more of the fluid that you're given in the intravascular space. So remember that a lot of patients requiring large volume resuscitations are acidotic from their underlying disease process, right? So I strongly support resuscitation with lactated ringers in these patients. It's less likely to cause hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, and it's less likely to cause persistent renal dysfunction or the need for renal replacement therapy, um, particularly in critically ill patients. This renal protection actually does extend into anyone admitted to the hospital that's getting IV fluid, but in that patient population, there's really no decrease in mortality and no uh, decrease in hospitals today. So this is really significantly more important in the critically ill. So lastly, how much and how fast do we give fluid? Well, this ties back into the talk from last time, right? You can give one to two liters pretty quickly over 15, 30 minutes in a patient that's in sock from hypovolemia. And really the answer to this question really depends on how volume down a patient is and what their underlying disease process is, right? So in a patient with DKA, they're typically three to six liters down. So giving them 30 per kilo in the first hour is really what we ought to be aiming for. Um, if this is a patient with HHS, right, they may be eight to 12 liters down. So we should be aiming to give them four to six liters in the first 12 hours of them being in the hospital. But again, aiming for two to three liters while they're in the emergency department. So 30 per kilo is a reasonable goal. In general, resuscitation in most shock situations, we're targeting a urinary output of greater than 0.5 cc per kilo per hour. And also remember that we may, we may need to be adding other electrolytes to the fluid. So adding potassium in patients that are hypokalemic at the start of a resuscitation so we don't further exacerbate this issue as a resuscitation continues. But this is all very disease specific and provider dependent. All right. That's all I know about fluid resuscitation in general. We'll hammer down more details as we start to talk more about resuscitation in specific disease states, okay, or specific clinical situations. As always, please give me feedback, make suggestions for topics. I really want this to be something that's actually useful and helpful to you guys. So I really want you to reach out to me and tell me what I can be doing different or better, et cetera, et cetera. All right. I hope you guys have a glorious weekend. Goodbye.